Welcome to Pantasocracy, and this is your host, Miss Panty Bliss. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for, to our guests here today, sitting there pretending to clap. <laughs> uh, hello, um, welcome back to Pantasocracy, and uh, today, well, I've upgraded the Pantasocracy parlor a few notches, so we are sitting pretty in the gorgeous, glamorous elegance of Belvedere House in the heart of Dublin City, with a sky-high view over... Uh, North Great George's Street and the seagulls and cranes. I think I should probably move in here with my Mr. Bliss. Um, I guess we started thinking about recording here in this grand and beautiful old house when things fell apart <laughs> and all of our normal studios closed down during lockdown. So while I was fiddling with my wigs and not learning how to bake sourdough, we all thought, well, let's just try something different. So here we are. And for those of you who are listening on the radio or on the podcast, um, you can check out the videos on pantasocracy.ie to get an idea of just how gorgeous we all are today and how perfectly I've matched my dress to the 18th century decor. Um, and in some ways, that ties in with our show today as we have brought together a group of interesting people who all, in different ways, sort of reinvented themselves in a way when things fell apart and their normal day-to-day -day work stopped. So. With me, as gorgeous as this house, is the gorgeous photographer, Ruth Medjber, whose gig used to be floating around with bands at music festivals and so on, taking stunning shots, but who during the COVID lockdown started wandering the streets at night and created a stunning project of twilight photographs of people, solos or families, every kind of family, through the windows of their homes, capturing a sense of the isolation during those months. And it's a poignant record of strange times. Uh, so, welcome, Ruth. Lovely to have you. <laughs> On the other beautiful uh, sofa across from Ruth um, is Mr. Gavin McRae, who was happily immersed, I think, in his third novel, uh, working away as writer-in-residence at the University of Limerick when things fell apart, and he ended up in lockdown back home in Dublin, living in a tiny flat with his elderly mum. And in the midst of all that, began write writing something quite new and unexpected, a memoir with his mother. And later, I think you're going to share a little bit of that with us. Welcome, Gavin. Lovely to have you. And a third in our trinity is a woman of song, Emma Langford from County Limerick, who, like so many music artists, was about to gig or tour and do a million things. And from mid-March, when things closed down, started something totally new and unexpected. Friday night sing-along sessions on YouTube and social media, letting go of studio perfection and even taking requests. Uh, basically running live music chat shows online. Uh, so, welcome, Emma. Thank you very much. Anyway, with all of that in mind, I am going to keep the floor for a little minute, because I can, because my name is in the title of the show. <laughs> and uh, today's panty monologue. No, there aren't many things in life that you can be absolutely sure of, but there is one, and no, it's probably not what you think it is because Cher is still going strong. And so at the very least, she's cast enough doubt on the inevitability of death to be put in the let's wait and see column. No, the only thing in life that you can be absolutely sure of is shit happens. And Dolly Parton has probably written a song about it. <laughs> like most of us, I'd already had a lot of time on my hands this year to think. And one enormous, though simultaneously microscopically small reason to think about the fact that shit happens. And sometimes you see it coming. You have just enough time to brace yourself, or if it's a bit further off, maybe enough time to scramble for higher ground, or maybe MacGyver up a raft, maybe even a paddle too. 
or sometimes it happens without any warning at all. It drops on you out of a clear blue sky. And there are times where it never seems to stop happening. You don't have time to catch your breath before there's another one, and then another, and then another, and then three at once. And sometimes there's a lull. Shit hasn't happened in ages. <laughs> nothing on the horizon. You keep checking, still nothing. And after a while, you get used to it. You stop checking the horizon. It is plain sailing, and you start to think, maybe it's done with you, you've used up your shit quota. But there is no shit quota, and there is no plain sailing. You know who thought there was plain sailing? Kate Winslet. She didn't even see Celine Dion coming. Shit happens, and it happens to everyone. There are no exemptions, no free passes, no VIP guest list, no doctor's note. It doesn't care if you are rich or poor, black or white, good or bad, grow on your shoga or shield your shoga. <laughs> doesn't care if you're a factory worker or the Queen of England or of Ireland. And it decides when and where and how often. You don't develop herd immunity and there's no vaccine. And you can't really prepare yourself for it either, because you don't know what you're preparing for till you're up to your neck in it. There's no smash glass in case of shit happening or list of emergency items to have under the sink, because every time it happens, it's different. You know who I bet was prepared? Kate Winslet. She's the type. But she still ended up on a huge piece of wreckage watching Leonardo DiCaprio die rather than just shifting over a bit. You know, bad stuff happens, and there's not much you can do about that. But you can choose how you deal with it, how you face it or get through it, what you do with it. You can choose your attitude to it. And why should you believe me? Because I know my shit. It's one of the few areas of expertise of mine. Because I tell you, if you are the type of person who wants to keep the risk of shit happening to an absolute minimum, do not become a drag queen. <laughs> become a Volvo. And dare I say, at the risk of offending my guests today, don't become a photographer or a musician <laughs> or a writer either. In fact, you should just rule out all of the arts and the majority of any and all other related lines of work. You wouldn't like them. But the thing is, do you? I mean, do you really want to avoid shit happening at all costs? <clears throat> Because when it happens, Well, it's not always bad. And sometimes it looks bad at first, but after it hits you, it turns out you didn't give that guy in the Che Guevara t-shirt in college enough credit, because that was some good shit. <laughs> And sometimes, as with so many things in life, it's a bit of both. Thing is, sure, no one wants to be Kate Winslet, but maybe you do want to be Kathy Bates, the unsinkable Molly Brown. I mean, she survived two shipwrecks, then became famous, got a cool nickname, and I am guessing dined out on the story for the rest of her unsinkable life. You know, shit happened to Molly Brown that we know of at least twice, and for her, it wasn't all bad. I mean, think about it, it wasn't all bad for Kate Winslet either. I mean, she may have murdered Leonardo DiCaprio and lost a big blue diamond, but she also got rid of Billy Zane and learned both Irish dancing and how to have an orgasm. Because <laughs> even when it is definitely bad shit, at the very least, you learn from it. I was young and foolish when I became a drag queen. I could barely see as far as the next weekend, let alone the precarious nature of a career in tomfoolery and shenanigans. I can see it now, of course, looking back, and I see what an unsuspecting, naive idiot I was. If I had known then what I know now about the shit that life throws at you, I would have made a lot of different choices. But here's the conundrum. If I could go back and tell myself what I know now, I wouldn't, 
Because all the shit that happened, all the times things fell apart, made me who I am now, and I am okay with that. I'm fine with that, actually. And at the time, all it took was foolishness to make the choices that I made. But if I'd known the shit that was coming down the pipe, those same choices would have taken a bravery that I didn't have. Hey. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we are in this beautiful, beautiful house, and I'm considering becoming rich <laughs> and living somewhere like this. Um, hi, welcome everybody. Um, Ruth, I guess I'm going to start with you because um, a lot of people already have seen some of the work that um, came out of this shit happening. <laughs> and, and, and I was very conscious as well when I was writing that in, last night and thinking, I don't want to get the impression that it's all going to work out beautifully for everybody. Uh, but that's, you know, sometimes out of the least likely circumstances. So do you want to tell us a little yeah. about the project? So I guess I'm probably the exception in the music industry where I have something to work on and I very much imagined it out of nowhere. Um, so, yeah, I am a music photographer. That's, that's my game. That's my business. And I have struggled for this long to become a music photographer. Yeah. And I finally felt like I was reaching my peak or the jumping off period where I can begin to tour internationally as my main income. It was great crack and I was all for it and this year was going so to be... you were having an exhibition in Australia. This is an exhibition and, yeah. in Australia at the moment of all my music photography. I'd just come back off tour with Hosier. Last year I did Arcade Fire. Um, I started to work as the Glastonbury photographer for BBC. You know, things, yeah. are, things are nice yeah. and then oh. shit happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so everything was snatched pretty, pretty early. Um, so my inbox became really overcrowded with cancellation emails from I guess from the first or second week of March things things came really quickly um, hey man, did you uh, immediately have the same fears uh, fortunately this is financially it's been a fine year for me because my my res residency hasn't stopped it's just gone online okay. so I'm fine until December but in December then I'll be asking the same question <laughs> <laughs> and Emma you're a, you were a musician uh, like did you immediately get the, 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 the total fear about yeah, it yeah there was a lot of a lot of hard choices a lot of executive choices to be made very quickly that yeah. it was really hard to know what the right thing to do was um, yeah. but you know it was like I had a month-long tour of Germany planned. I was meant to be going to the Barbados. I was meant to be doing various things for TV that just all fell through. And it wasn't just my own health and well-being I had to consider. I have a band around yeah. me that needs yeah. to be thought about as well. So, yeah, a lot of stuff fell through. But I, you know, any freelancer in Ireland knows that you find ways to survive. You get creative yes, when you to, have yeah. to. And, and you just, you, you work around circumstances. And thankfully, I was able to do that. Now, Ruth, so, so there you are you're feeling really pretty crap about the whole thing. Yeah. Nothing to do of an evening because everything's gone and I'm used, I'm kind of programmed, hardwired at this stage to get my camera and shoot in the evening time um, because that's, that's yeah. tour life. You know, the band walks on stage at nine o'clock on the dot and there I am poised for two hours of shooting. Well, I, I get that. I'm a night owl and people yeah. always look at you suspiciously when you tell them what time you got out of bed and I'm like, yeah, but you were in bed hours before. I worked until <laughs> the floor. Yeah, or that, you know, oh, I sit down and have a cup of tea at 11 p.m. and they're like, what? It's like, yeah, this is my time. So yeah, I was, you know, I'm taking the dog out for a walk and I'm trying to console myself for the loss of my entire industry and, you know, walking just through the estates where I live and I see the, at twilight, the flicker of the lights start coming on. I was mm. like, God, isn't that great? And a part of me was looking at it really 
like full of jealousy going I want to be in those houses I want to be with those people I want to because I live alone so it's very different I think when you're when you do live alone in in isolation isolation becomes really isolated so I started to kind of pine for being in those houses so I just decided to do the next best thing which was peer on them from outside were the first photographs taken like in a portrait style of somebody you knew and you were kind of called them up and said will you stand in your uh, window yeah. from the first, very first one or? yeah so listen I knew the first 16 people in that series um, because I wanted to just hang out with my mates and I did it through the only way we could which was through the window so I called my friend Maeve and her husband Paul and they had a new little baby that I was desperate to kind of just hang on to connections with so my tech to her was like um what time does bumblebee go to bed at is, is it nighttime is it is it dark outside can you hold her up to the window my friends are like whatever you want totally fine so that was it it started at eight o'clock one night and so it was you know the it was in march that i started doing this then once i had that first photograph of this lovely wee family and the baby i was like oh this just is for the magic. listeners to yeah. describe the, sure. so the photographs are you're basically outside on the pavement or whatever in dublin and and you're taking the photograph through often their front door window or their living room window, whatever is yeah. the ground floor, and they're standing bathed in the uh, light from yeah. their inside, and yeah. it's twilight, and they're family portraits or individual portraits. Yeah, so you get this lovely warm glow because people's... They, I make everyone turn on the big light, which people hate. They hate <laughs> turning on the big light. So I get them to turn on the big light, bring some lamps to the fore, forefront of the... of the, Put them on the windowsill, basically. And it creates this lovely, warm, loving glow inside mm. the house, like a Christmas card almost. Yeah. And then outside is all blue and purple of twilight. And, and for the Instagram types out there, they can look... They can see yeah. a, a pl- them on your Instagram. Oh, there's bloody loads um, of them. I've Instagram done, again? It's ruthless imagery. Oh, Of course, yeah, there's How about 160 odd households now that have been captured. Wow, that's a lot. Oh yeah, I've been working every single night since this oh thing started. <laughs> um, And then, well, I, I'm going to come back to you to sure. f- for the story of how that has now become a whole book project and how that yeah. that came about. Um, Gavin, so let me just fill us in a bit on how you ended up uh, back mm-hmm. here after 20 yeah, years 20 in, years, in yeah. Spain. Well, not 20 years in Spain, 20 years abroad, the past six years in Spain. Um, I had just finished my second novel in September of last year, Mm -hmm. and I applied for this fellowship. And the second novel for me was a big milestone. It's a a larger book than my first, longer. Um, Mm -hmm. And I felt very proud of myself, and I thought, okay, getting this fellowship is a real step forward. And so coming home for me was the business blinkers were on. It wasn't to re-engage with my past. It wasn't yeah. certainly not to re-engage with my mother on any deep level. It was, you know, career. My career is taking off. Yeah. I just graduated from college. I felt your, like, your first book was super well received and critically exactly. acclaimed. And I wanted to follow it up with something yeah. really much bigger, more ambitious, and I did that. It took me a long time. It took me five years. And so coming home, getting this fellowship was like, okay, I'm going to get paid for a year, a monthly check. This is going to be a really big opportunity for me to follow up with my third novel, get it on its legs. So I came home, and then three things happened. Yeah, you were sort of hit with a triple whammy with of triple whammy. shit happening. So the first thing was, I arrived home, my mother very kindly gave me her box room in her flat in, in Rathgar. And so I moved in, and then very, I began to realize, living with her, that she was losing her memory, that she mm-hmm. had early stage dementia. And in the family, we knew she, because she'd see my brothers and sisters, they all live in Dublin or around, we knew that she was getting older, yeah. but it was only living with her that we realized that she was yeah. losing it. So that was a shock. And so we had to have these family discussions about long-term care. So instead of me coming home to kind of like, I'm, I'm graduating, you know, I'm, you know, yeah. it's, oh, 
actually, maybe I'm going to be a full-time carer in the future. That's, those are the conversations I'm having. That was the first thing. The second thing, I, in February, two months into my fellowship, <clears throat> I was beaten up in a homophobic attack. Yeah. And Which at I, the time was covered widely. It was covered widely, and mm. I, I was shocked how widely it was covered. But it, I decided to go public with it, even though I'm quite a private person. And the experience of writing about, from the eye, mm -hmm. my novels, both of them, one and two, are quite distant from me, apparently. You know, <laughs> yeah. they, they look far away. Yeah, my first novel is a 19th century thick, woman. Yes, and then the, yeah. and the, second, the second one's going to be in the, in the 60s and 70s uh, in London, Paris and Beijing. Again, women. So it looks quite distant from me, even yeah. though, of course, I'm of in course. there. But this is my first time to publish a very short article mm -hmm. from, from the eye. Yeah. And I, I actually thought about you a little bit in coming here in, in the sense of, I may be a little bit in drag before and then, or the other way around, maybe, <laughs> yeah. or going into drag or something. Anyway, You're revealing slightly, yourself. Uh, yeah, revealing yeah. myself through, through that I, I voice. And I got a great feedback from that, and that was great. And I had to engage with my past and my past with homophobia, dealing with homophobia in my past and all that. Yeah, and because I don't want to put any um, you know, assumptions on here, but probably like, a, I'm, I think, like a lot of queer people, <laughs> Irish queer people, maybe you kind of ran out of here at one point. I liked it. Yeah. But I, I mean, I, I knew I was going to leave at 12 years old. Mm. You know, it was very clear to me I was going to leave at 12 years old. And then I left in my early 20s. And apart from a couple of, you know, jaunts back, I, yeah. I was always kind of like jumping back and then, then leaving. And you come back to this post-marriage equality thing. Exactly. And then you get yeah. attacked. Out of the blue, yeah. Yeah. Um, in a kind of the early evening, you know, no drink or drugs involved. And it was just really, no, you know. And it was a gang of a gang kids, young kids. Yeah. And, yeah. 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 So that made me have to deal with a lot of things from my own past, which was very positive on many, many levels. Deal with a lot of things, my family and my friends and, and lots of like, primary school teachers got in touch with me and all of that, which was fantastic. Then two weeks later or three weeks later, the lockdown. So I had these kind of three things. I was now caught in this flat with my mother, mm -hmm. no access to the library, no desk in my room. I just had this experience of being beaten up. My mother's losing her memory and... I was remember I was just laying lying in bed one night and I started to keep a dream journal because my dreams had become extremely vivid and I said you know what this is the moment to write something yeah. personal about my relationship with my mother and take it from there and I just got up in the middle of the night at three in the morning the whole structure of the book was so clear in my mind. God, I hate when people say things I like know, that. So. Like, like <laughs> I had a dream and it all came to me. And <laughs> really, I'm not like that. I'm very research driven. My first two books are very research led. I did a lot yeah, of research. Yeah, yeah, I really yeah. had to kind of get it up, get them up on the, onto its legs. This is the total opposite. I just had it. And I just started writing it. And, that. and then, I'm, I, as a lark, I'm going to be here for a month. I may as well start writing about this. And then yeah. I made the mistake of showing it to my editor. And he said, I want, I want it by the end of the summer. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I like, like oh, the shit. speed yeah. of these things, you know, both you and Ruth, you know, that, you're, yeah. that this thing happens so fast in the middle of all this other stuff. Um, yeah, well, I'm, I'm going to come back and okay. talk to you about how that project. <laughs> um, and Emma, so you're, you're in Limerick, mm -hmm. and you're about to go off to Barbados, yeah. get you, <laughs> and then it happens, and you're stuck at home yeah. in your parents' house? Or? Yeah, 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 so I'm at home with my, my mum and dad and my sister, um, my younger sister. They're stuck. I mean, they, I'm sure they're lovely. No, they are, they're fabulous, in. they're great housemates, <laughs> they are, they're brilliant, um, they're very um, 
accommodating and they always have been we've always always had a very good relationship uh but yeah it's it's strained and it's strange and it's difficult um because the reality of working as a musician is your work is loud and requires silence and everyone else has their own ideas um (laughs) and when you have time in a house as well that is shared obviously people want to start making space in the house and now is the time to start painting everything and renovating everything which doesn't suit a musician who needs to record um and i'm hit with all these i was hit with all these sudden um collaboration proposals that needed me to know what i was doing with a microphone which i just didn't and there was this immense sense of frustration i couldn't just go to someone and ask them to help me i couldn't just go to a studio i couldn't just figure get someone else to figure things out for me yeah and and there was an expectation from a lot of other musicians that i would know how to do all that as well so yeah it was it was a lot of adapting and learning and so then how did the idea to start doing your uh, let's call them online sessions yeah so it it kind of evolved quite quickly um it started out as just occasional pop-up gigs where i would do a couple of songs and then i'd do a bedtime story and I started recording little kind of um, mini podcasts for my Patreon followers, all that kind of thing, with maybe like a little poem that I loved um, or a children's book or something like that. And then uh, I started whittling it down to just doing every Friday, I would do a two-hour session. And then I started having guests on to join me. So I was doing it on Instagram, and then I moved it across to all platforms. And it started building this really and you're gorgeous... square. At home in my, I kind of went, I started in my bedroom and then I moved it down to the kitchen. I started getting my sister and my mom involved and they'd do like little guest pop-up slots as well. And then I... <laughs> like the Kardashians. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and in a way, it has become a bit like you running your own little uh, mini TV kind channel. Kind of, yeah. It's yeah. compared to kind of a Jules Holland style presentations so I get my guests in and, and everyone similarly everyone has some kind of a little bit of a link there's a theme every week and we have a chat about what they're working on and so you are basically in the, in this scenario you've become much more than a musician yeah. you're a producer and a director and all well, that stuff I suppose, and are, yeah. is, are, is that do you enjoy that part of it I love it yeah I suppose in the past few months I haven't felt like writing music so um, I, in lieu of that, I just decided I'd step into this other role. I'd always wanted to go into journalism or presenting. I've drifted in that direction now. I'm really, really enjoying it. I'm, I'm someone who, I don't relish the opportunity to go out in social environments mm. and talk to people. But when I have the safety of a camera and a persona that I can use to connect with I people... I wouldn't understand that at all. <laughs> it, it becomes much easier. And I, I, I really enjoy learning about people's... I suppose their personal life as much as their careers, it's, it's yeah. quite nice. Um, and, and the chats I'd have as part of these um, formal Friday sing songs were as much about people's personal lives and how they were adapting as it was about their careers. Okay, well, you're going to give us a couple of songs today. I am, so yeah. um, the first one, tell us about the first one. Yeah, the first one is called The Winding Way Down to Kells Bay. And Kells Bay is a place in South Kerry, which is one of the most beautiful places on earth. And it's where my granduncle Eamon lived since the 60s with his late wife, Breed. So in 2018, myself and my parents went to visit him in South Kerry. And he'd been asking us to visit loads and loads. And he has this like monthly sing song that he gets all his friends together and they celebrate songs of the place, which I thought was really beautiful. It was a way of kind of um, sustaining and maintaining that history, that local folklore. You think that's what inspired you to do your own sort of? And maybe in a way, yeah, that kind of sense of building a community around, around music was something that really connected with me. He had this little yellow house on a hill and he'd potter down the road to the sea at the end of the road every day and he'd 
go into the water and he wouldn't so much as swim as float. He just kind of, that was his offering to the sea. He just bobbed in the water for a while. And uh, so the next day the sun was beating down, splitting the rocks and he did his little wander down to the end of the road and he went into the sea and he had a massive heart attack in the water. And I would say everyone from Kells Bay, from Carasavine, was in the water this day. So there was loads of people there. We got a phone call up at the house to say that Eamon had taken a bit of a fall. Do we want to come down and just check up on him? But when we got down there, he had uh, he was being looked after by f- uh, first aid responders. And so we lost him a couple of days later. When and I came back to... This was in 2018, in July. So we're just at his, fe- at his anniversary. So I wrote The Winding Way Down to Kells Bay in kind of honour of him and and Karsavine and, and that sense of community. So. Well, that's like a really beautiful um, backstory to it. Mm. So uh, let's All hear right. it, please. All right, so this is the winding way down to Kells Bay. Feel free to think of someone you're missing or a place you can't wait to get back to. And when the bell rings, then we'll all head away 
on the winding way down to Cairns Bay, where the ocean could carry our worries away. On the winding way down to Cairns Bay, and we'll stop for the chat and the old cabonte. On the winding way down to Cairns Bay. And the golden sun sets like no other, they say, on the winding way down to Kells Bay. Mm-hmm. Yes, the ocean could carry our worries away on the winding way down. Gosh, I was really transported there because we are sitting in this like dramatically gorgeous uh, mansion in the middle, hard of Dublin, Dublin, looking out over Northern Georgia. And who would have? Well, I, it turns out that that is actually the perfect setting to hear a song about the winding road down to Kells Bay. Mm. It was so beautiful. Uh, one of the great things about doing the show is you get to like uh, have performances like right up beside you in a tiny setting. And yeah. Yeah. Did you have to train yourself to whistle like that? No, I didn't. I, I, you'll hear in the next song as well, there's a couple of tricks I can do. But, um... <laughs> <laughs> because you're a beautiful whistler, if that's a funny thing to say. But aren't you? Like, yeah. Yeah, there's a, like a tradition of it in different families where like, certain men of a certain age would have the lilt to the whistle kind of thing. And I just, I just started doing it randomly when I was in my teens and always got this feedback of, there's a lovely lift, there's a lovely lift to your whistle. <laughs> um, Ruth, I want to come back to you now for a second. Um, so you are, it's, lockdown has happened. You're, everything had ended. You were, you were quite vocal about, you know, um, how hard it was on independent artists and so on. And then you had this little idea and you're starting this thing. And, and I saw it growing organically I, uh, because... Um, well, people were sharing them around. When I put it on Instagram, I obviously put it on Twitter as well, and um, the Irish Times saw it, and they were like, can we run it as a cover? I was like, cool. And then the Irish Times ran it, and then CNN ran it, which was gas. And then all of a sudden, I had hundreds of people in my inbox who had copped on to where I'd live, were like, oh, I'm in your area, I'm in your 2K, can I be part of the project? And I'm, I can never say no to people, especially nice people. I'm like, ah, grand, okay, I'll be over tonight. So I started doing it street by street and doing maybe four, five, six a night. And then I kind of got the impression that it was bigger than me. The people were enjoying this for, for various reasons, you know, because it's a lot of the imagery that we were seeing during that particular time was quite negative and it was showing what it was showing the sad scenes. It was showing what COVID had taken from us. But my imagery kind of showed people what it had given us, which was a time to be together at home and to kind of appreciate that. And maybe that we should, you know, hang on to it for as long as we can, because there won't be another time, hopefully, in our lifetime where we're locked down again. Yes, and it's also, it was almost like a historical record. And I imagine to those people, they're thinking, especially the younger parents in that, one day I'm going to show this picture yeah. and I'll say, you know... When That's you were, actually that who is. I have in mind when I'm... Because the book is going to be all these photographs, but it's also... They're going to be paired with maybe 50 or so stories. But I'm writing those stories with 
the kids in mind because I do want them to sit down and go, what, what were you on about? Banana bread. And be like, oh, this is it. Like, yeah. you know. So I want references to all that. I want it to be a little time capsule of mm. what we've all gone through collectively in this mad time. So yeah, like Penguin just came to me and um, it's actually really random how they found me. They, random house. Um, <laughs> um, so they, the Fiona who, who works in Penguin Random House followed my instagram um because i went on tour with arcade fire and she's a massive fan of theirs and she was like we have to have this so i was like grand that takes i don't have to think about it i hadn't even considered a book or anything so once i got the go ahead to to do that and it gave my project kind of structure and a really defined sense of worth i kind of felt like all oh, right i can treat this as a job now yeah. as opposed to just something i'm mickey mousing with while mm -hmm. i'm waiting for the music industry to come back mm -hmm. so once i kind of got that little bit of a, a nod from them or a, a recognition i said right instead of this just being in my 2k and fingless and merino i'm gonna go and represent all of ireland as best as i possibly can so i wanted all corners geographically but i also wanted all types of people so different ethnicities different religions different upbringings different backgrounds professions all that so so that when I could look back cover to cover, that it's a fair representation of Ireland, because that's always yeah. what I want to give in any project that I do. Well, that's uh, so exciting. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm not a writer, though. So well, tips, please. That's guys. why it's exciting. <laughs> well, no, you're, you're you're writing a book that people want to be in. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've had messages yes, from <laughs> messages from my family. You, you, you're more than welcome to forget we exist. Uh, yeah. Yes, because I was I was going to bring that up actually. Um, having read written a little memoir myself once. Um, I know that yes. you, uh, that uh, some people are, you know, don't care at all, um, and some people do. Um, so, but, but but tell me about Brida, your mother. Yes. So, tell me about uh, her, if, mm -hmm. and how is she fully aware of the, the book? Uh, she's aware I'm writing something. I mean, she's an amazing woman. My mother would be. I've talked to her about writing a memoir, and she is uh, very pro. She's very supportive in that way. Mm -hmm. um, She's a very broad-minded woman. She was uh, born here in Dublin, um, in the city centre on, on the North Circular Road, in a tenement. Went to school here on North Great George Street, just around the corner, just right there. Um, and then when the social housing was built in Ballyferma, she was moved, moved out there. And then she was taken out of school at 15 and put to work in town. Mm -hmm. And then she met my father, who was from Renala, and they set up a home in deep south suburbs in, in Dublin. And she had a family, and then she discovered books in her 30s. No education, no leading cert, no intercert, nothing. And so I was raised in a house full of books. And, and at that time, you were like, it was a close relationship you had with her all? I'm the youngest. So, okay. um, and she started quite late. So I'm 42, and now she's 80. So and for those times, she started mm. quite late. Um, and so I had her to myself. Yeah. And. Uh, we had a very, very close uh, relationship. Um, and, and when you came out, how was that? Uh, good, I, very early. I'm sitting here in front of you, Panty. I have to say, I would love to tell the story of seeing you for the first time. Well, it depends. Well, it links into your question because I remember coming home one night, midweek, dressed a little bit outrageously, and my father was sitting at the kitchen table. And that was when it all came out. It wasn't planned no, in advance. No, no, no. But what I was coming home from, <laughs> uh -huh. I was still in school. 
back in those days, we didn't have transition year. So I was 17, just turned 17 in uh -huh. February of my final year. And I just started going into town, going into the George around that age. And I remember I had my first boyfriend. Um, and he used to get us into clubs that I wouldn't have been able to get into at 17 years old. <laughs> I'm worried where this is going. <laughs> no, no, yeah. it's really lovely. It's a lovely yeah. story. It's not a bad story. And so the first time I saw you was in the kitchen nightclub in the Clarence, okay, in the yeah. Clarence Hotel. Yes, I used to work there. Yes. Yeah. And I had my school uniform in my bag. Oh, you're and kidding. It, yeah, yeah. It was... It was um, what was that night they used to run Strictly Handbag? Strictly Handbag, like that? yes. that's where I, yeah, I worked at yeah. that every Monday yeah. for a year. A Monday, it was Monday, because yeah, it was midweek, because I had my uniform in my bag. So we were there, and they used to pump this dry ice in the kitchen. And then this dry ice cleared, and I saw you sitting on a deck chair. <laughs> or it was a sun lounger. You had a cocktail in your hand. <laughs> this is the years before we had cocktails. Yes. And my mind was blown. I, and it was, so, it was such an important moment for me because I had it such a difficult few, few years. And it was so interesting to hear you say that, you know, you didn't know what you were doing and you were foolish. And yeah. I saw you as this worldly, <laughs> wise being, you know. It's like this person's been around and, she, <laughs> and she's, she's I, I don't mean in that yeah, way. No, you know no, what no, I mean. No, no. <laughs> Experience and... That's one of the things. People, you know, they say those kind of things to me quite often, that they at a certain age saw me and it gave them yeah. permission. I didn't know I was doing it. Yeah. I was just having fun, <laughs> so I'm not taking credit. But that's how they interpreted it, yeah. that, that I gave them permission to, yeah. you know. Definitely. Uh, and I knew you'd been away, and I'd heard on the grapevine that you were home from Japan or something like yeah. that. And so I knew that going away was the thing to do for me. <laughs> but more than that, I, I was also very frightened of you in the sense that I was very young and you mm. were very experienced to me and I would never have approached you at that mm. time. Um, but just the fact, of, exactly what you said, just the fact of having seen you and that, that exists and exists in Ireland and someone Irish is doing it, that was very, very... Of course, your good choice is not approaching because if I'd found out you were 17, you would have been out the door. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was 17 with my uniform in my back. I remember oh it so God. distinctly, yeah. 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 Um, well, that in took us off to... Um, yes. so, so back but, to Breed. Back to my mother. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so coming home from those nights that I would mm. be going out, um, should have been studying, it yeah. all came to a head around then. My mother was strangely strange about it. My father was kind of adapted to it quicker, even though he was the more conservative one. That's similar to my own parents, yeah. Yeah. But, but then, so deciding to write a, you know, a book that involves her and everything, uh, is, that's a, a big decision yeah. regardless mm. of... Um, and so... I didn't ask her permission. It's not something I'm going to do. Okay. It's not something I feel I need to do. But, yeah. you, well, so you haven't asked her you know, permission to write the book, but... You are having to care for her in every other way, so you are sometimes making decisions for her? She is very independent. That's almost the problem. Okay. That she's so physically well, yeah. and that if the mind goes, then you okay. know, it's a long time. Well, well, actually, let's, let's hear. So this is, um, well, you introduce it. It's the prologue. This it? is the prologue, yeah. It's just one page, 500 words, and it's a yep. single long sentence. <laughs> I'm spending the quarantine in a small flat in South Dublin with my 80-year-old mother, who according to the emergency regulations, is not allowed outside at any time or for any reason, but who, at 10 o'clock every morning, having breakfasted and hoovered and watered the pots and decided she can't spend another moment within these walls, insists on packing her coin purse and a bottle of water into her backpack, she leaves her mobile phone on the kitchen counter, and setting off on a route that takes her along the Dodder River, through Rathgar, 
then Milltown, then Klonski, into Donnybrook, where, in the only place open, a spa supermarket, she buys a takeaway coffee and a pastry to be eaten as she makes her way through Herbert Park, Bowles Bridge, Rings End, reaching the River Liffey at Tom Clark Bridge. In normal circumstances, a busy toll link, but now empty of traffic, which allows her to stand in the middle of the road as she looks across to the port on the other bank and the moored boats and the warehouses and the cranes that seem to be holding up by thin threads the skeletons of new office blocks. And I wonder what comes to her mind then, at that spot, taking in this scene, which even devoid of people and cars and in this bright spring weather cannot, I imagine, be beautiful. Is there something specific that touches her, the sight of a swallow returned from Africa perhaps, before she turns around and returns the way she came, eight kilometres each way, 16 in total, and comes back through the door and takes off her shoes. And I say to her from the kitchen where I am preparing her lunch, vegetarian salads or soba noodles or pilaf or roasted vegetables and twice a week fresh fish, for both of us are skinny and live in terror of weight gain. Did you get arrested, I say. And she says, pardon, because she's almost deaf. And I say, did they slap a fine on you at least? And if she hears this, which she sometimes chooses to, she lets out a laugh before going into her bedroom to get changed into her indoor jumper and slacks. And because she doesn't emerge for a while, I call into her. This is ready, come in and sit down. But she can never sit down immediately. She has to do something first, like put a wash into the machine. So I'm always at the table before her, waiting, already irritated. And when finally she does come, she says, this is gorgeous, before she even tastes the food. And then, are you going into town today? which annoys me further because it's something she says all the time, having forgotten she said it before. And I say, Jesus, mum, not this again. And she says, what again? And I say, why would I be going into town? Town is shut down. And while she can see I'm upset and wants not to upset me like this, she's also wounded by my tone. And I'm ashamed then and can only look at my plate. And I decide not to mention that my homeless brother called while she was out to ask her for money. Um, it's uh, is that the page you sent to your yeah. editor? Yeah, I can see yeah. why. Like, what a setup! And there's so much in that little thing. Um, Thank you. Do you have a deadline? Toward the end of the summer. Yep. We'll see how it they goes. Really up. <laughs> What's summer they? though? You know? <laughs> yeah, <what> summer? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who's summer? <laughs> um, Bruce, mm -hmm. your dad is, uh, I guess, responsible for you being a, ph a photographer. Uh, yeah, in a way, I guess. I thought you were going to say he's responsible for me being born. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> well, I would he, hope so. There's some part to play. Yeah, so um, dad used to sell camera equipment, like mm. the old school um, darkroom stuff. And just to, your, your surname is Medjbear, which Medjbear. You know, isn't from the Kells yeah. Bay area. Um, Not from Kerry. No, <laughs> yeah. it's from Algeria. Dad yeah. came um, to Ireland from Algeria in the late 70s. Uh, met my mum. Married, had a couple of kids, and I'm one of them. Uh, but he used to sell camera gear, and uh, instead of putting me into childcare, he'd put me in the back of the van, surrounded by all the camera lenses and the blower brushes and the fun stuff to play with, and uh, really inspired that in me. So I was, I was, I grew up literally surrounded by cameras and never ever let them go. So I've, I've been shooting my entire life. It came so naturally. Um, and was your dad? Um 
like was he interested in photography itself nope. or just the selling of the the, the machine dad was interested in making money because it okay. was there was a recession <laughs> so he wasn't we wasn't exactly a photographer no i think you have to be somewhat quite geeky to be a photographer you know it's all absolutely yeah it's, it's <laughs> physics it's the physics of light which i mm. just find so mesmerizing that's what i love capturing and it's 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 making sure that you capture different atmospheres represented in different types of light yeah. which is what i play with now so and um i'm going to go back to your uh, your dad in what year did he come to ireland and why in a sense um 78 and he came here uh, as part of an apprenticeship he was an aircraft engineer a uh, young aircraft engineer there was 10 of them that came over with an Aer Lingus exchange with air algeria and uh um, they all stayed. <laughs> it was supposed to be a six months program and I don't think any of them went back because, you know, Ireland and Europe was such a was such a, a glamorous place compared to Algeria and Algeria then unfortunately yeah, suffered. Yeah, it was a mess at the time. Yeah. yeah, it suffered an awful lot worse tragedies in the 80s and the 90s mm. then especially. Yeah. So God, there, I'm, have, you, have you been? I've or? been, yeah. Are you, are you very connected to that side of your... I want to be more connected. So yeah, that's always in the back of my head that Ireland is not just white Ireland anymore and it's not just the Catholic upbringing Irish we have so many different types of people here that they should be represented so yeah yeah that it is maybe that is why maybe it is my dad in me you know and the fact that I was brought up in different mindsets and I had yeah. a, an, a Muslim father and a Catholic mother so yes. I want to reach out and see who else is out and, there um, Emma you have another song. I this do have another seems song. seems like a good time for it to me. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, this one's called Goodbye Hawaii. I wrote it years ago. I wrote it about seven years ago um, during the kind of the breaking apart of a relationship. So, uh, yeah, I, I wrote this song to kind of say I need to stand on my own feet again. Let's hear it. So, as I mentioned, there is another trick that happens in this song that I learned to do back when I was writing it. Ooh. And I've been perfecting ever since, so... Yeah, I often have to warn people that the sound is coming from my face. The expectations are high now. You know the funny thing about the day you realise Who or what you are Is that by the time it happens You're probably not that anymore And the funny thing is logic states for some things to break they first must fall and like any small or precious thing you give nothing or you give all I can't give you any more than that I don't trust my clumsy feet not to Little known fact that don't know how to heal itself if you cut it in half, so don't cut it in half. We spend our days in endless cycles of lust to oxytocin, never stopping to think about the space between us that we've chosen well. I can give my mouth my ear, but I can't give you my hand. Cause though you're so understanding, 
expectations telling us about the trick in advance and they were they were uh, reached those can expectations can you teach us how to play yes. mouth trumpet or whatever you call it just swallow a lot of oil and do <laughs> okay and just squeeze that trumpet right on the other okay i'm, <laughs> I'm getting possessed <laughs> by the ghost it's such a, it's 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 a brilliant little it's why? a nice little gimmick wanted to have, yeah. player and didn't have one or something. <laughs> exactly yeah. yeah i started to learn a song that my sister loved called sympathique by a band called pink martini that's good um, Gavin, the lockdown happened. Something maybe a very big thing to deal with for everybody, an existential crisis on a global level or something. Mm-hmm. If I can put it that way. Um, do you think it changed you in any way? This experience? Yes. Um, I'm also HIV positive, mm-hmm. and so I was looking at things through that lens, lens as well, and that was very interesting for me to see. So on that side of things, that was really. Mm, yes, I had that similar experience, like, yeah. you're only catching up now, folks. Yes. And it's likely, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll tell you one experience I had. I was in the supermarket, and I was standing on, you know, the squares they put on the floor to keep your distance? Yes. And I was one square away, Yeah. and she was paying. And I was obviously looking for my phone or something. I was moving, but I wasn't moving out of the spot. Yeah. And she screamed at me, don't come any closer, don't come any closer. And I said, oh, oh, I'm not. I'm standing on the square. I'm not going anywhere near you. And I just had this flashback of, those conversations we as HIV positive people have to have on like the second date. Yeah. I'm not going to harm you. You know, yeah. it's yeah. okay. The drugs are, you know, you know yeah. the yeah. drugs yeah. are yeah. working. Yeah. 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 We're not contagious. And so those kinds of things were very interesting. Mm. And then of course there was the, um, my mother, um, yeah. having, having this kind of new relationship with my mother and having lucid days where she's very lucid and we having very deep connections. And then other days where we're fighting mm-hmm. and other days where I just, blocking each other out, so it's been very, very, very interesting. I do feel it, changed. I it do. does sound very intense, I have it to does. say. It does, it is, it is intense. It Having happen. been so away for so long, yeah. and now coming back, and on one level kind of trying to hold on to her, because I know that things are slipping away, yeah. and then on the other hand, just trying to see her as she is, and, mm. you know, um, yeah. very, very interesting. It's, it's a lot. It is a lot, yeah. 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 But, um, you got... You know, you found a creative yeah. spark in yeah, there too. Yeah, no, no. So I think, I think, uh, it's. It, I think ultimately, it's going to be a good experience for me. Yeah. yeah. Ruth, I mean, obviously, it has changed the direction of your work or, or whatever. But do you think you're, you've, you've grown or changed or learned or? 
I think I'm still too far in it to have a realization mm. yet. I don't think what's happened is going to hit me for like another year or so at least. Yeah. Because fair enough, I'm I'm working on this book and I I kind of um I did a bit of a fight or flight. Do you know that's what yeah. hit me? I'm still very anxious and tense and very worried about work and income and what's going to happen in the next year because I'm very aware as well that the music and events industry won't come back in the same way mm-hmm. for at least another year. Um, Emma? I think I'm similar to Ruth, yeah. I, I've always been someone who finds things to do and finds new ways to express myself. And I've drifted toward painting and I've drifted toward producing stuff. And I'm looking at doing a degree in psychology and whether it's a case of I'm going to be studying up in the future. I, I've, you know, this, this whole... Um, crisis for want of a better word. Are you going to continue with the Sing Song uh, project? I'm, I'm looking at doing it, even even once restrictions lift, I am looking at doing it maybe on a monthly basis, mm-hmm. but I'm hoping to get maybe some kind of a sponsor for it or something, because yeah. just to make it sustainable. But also these things are a huge amount of work, and that's fine when yeah, you're in lockdown, yeah. you have all the time in the world. Exactly. Yeah, once life kind of kicks back into gear, it's, it's harder to find the time for those kind of things. So it's great to have support. Well, thank you all so much for sharing a lot today. Um, that is it for this episode of Hantisocracy. Um, Listeners, remember you can catch up on all the episodes in this season on any of your favorite podcast platforms. So do check the videos out also on pantasocracy.ie and RTE Culture as we're only gorgeous today. You should definitely see it. Thanks to my guests, Ruth Medjber, whose book is out in November. Yes. Yes. Uh, Gavin McRae, whose next book is... Who's out next year, The Sister's Mouth. The Sister's Mouth. <laughs> <laughs> and Emma Lineford, thank you for those beautiful songs. Thank you and so much. And those weird sounds. <laughs> that I love so much. And of course, all your stuff is on Spotify. It is, and there's and a new album out in September as well. And you have an album in September. What's it called? Sewing Acorns. I look forward to it. Thank you all so much in listener land. I've been Pantocracy. Good night.